Well, I want to start off this morning by directing your minds to an encouraging place. I want you to think of the worst smell that you've ever smelled. The, the, the worst, most horrific thing immediately comes to mind. Uh, I want you to think about that right now. Pretty exciting thought, isn't it? Uh, for me, hands down, I don't, I don't even have to think about it. I go back uh, to my time growing up as a dockhand at a marina on Lake Michigan, and we had a fish guts dumpster behind one of our buildings. Uh, we had a, an outbuilding that we stored our boats in the winter, and, and during the summer, we put the fish dumpster there. We were the first marina off of Lake Michigan on the particular river, the Grand River, uh, that we were uh, lived near, and, and there were charter boats and fishing boats all the time, and so when they cleaned their fish, uh, they can't throw it in the water like you can in the ocean where the scavenged fish come and eat it and the pelicans eat it. You've got to take it to a dumpster and throw it away. And that eight-yard dumpster, I can still uh, picture it vividly. In the hot summer sun, it would bake, and it would sizzle, and it would gurgle, and it was absolutely the most disgusting, foul smell that you could possibly imagine. You hated uh, having to go back to the back outbuilding uh, during the summer because if you could get through the flies... Um, you had to put something over your mouth, and God forbid, if you accidentally took a whiff of that smell, it would permeate the very lining of your nostrils, and you would smell it for hours and hours. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. Have you ever noticed that a smell, good or bad, can take you back to a place in time, right? Now, I don't like seafood to begin with, but even if I did, every time I smell seafood, uh, I mean, get in a nice restaurant, and it can be a, uh, an expensive restaurant, and a very, very nice piece of fish, but if I smell it, it takes me back to that North Shore Marina dumpster uh, back in the late ni- early 90s, and how absolutely disgusting it was. Well, the reason I tell that story this morning is because when something uh, is rotten, the smell permeates everything, and everyone around it becomes aware of it. And in the body of Christ, if there's anything rotten that smells uh, so badly that travels far and wide quickly within the body of Christ, it is conflict. In fact, many of you this morning are probably nursing wounds at the hands of other Christians. It's inevitable within the body of Christ we see it. Uh, We hear about it, and it is devastating to see. And sometimes the pain hurts so badly, the smell is so rotten, that it begs the question, are relationships a mess worth making? If the Apostle Paul were here this morning, he would answer that question with a resounding yes. And so let me invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians again today uh, as we continue in the series we launched last week, the creatively named series of 2 Corinthians. And last week in the first half of this series... Uh, We talked about God's good purpose for pain in your life, how he allows it, and what he does with the pain that you experience. We learned that uh, God uses affliction to draw near to us. We learned that he allows affliction in our lives so he can comfort us, so that in turn we are equipped to comfort other people. And then also he allows the pain in our life to reset our hope in him when it feels like all hope has been lost. And this week, Paul's going to help us navigate the pitfalls in relationships, And if relationships are the vehicle through which discipleship happens, which we uh, teach all the time that is the case, then we need to lean into what Paul is teaching here this morning, starting in the second half of chapter 1. And today we're going to actually cover a lot of ground. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2. And since that is so many verses, we can't read it all uh, together at once. But let's just start this morning, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Paul says this, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, 
that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you have read and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand. I don't want you to gloss over those uh, words there, the last part of verse 13. I hope you will fully understand. Uh, Paul is uh, writing to help to try to restore a relationship that's gone south due to some misunderstanding that's taken place. Aren't you glad that that doesn't happen anymore, right? Here we are 2,000 years later in the church still experiencing the same thing. And all of Paul's letters to the church, especially the church here at Corinth, were to correct something. Now, we know that this is actually not his second letter. We believe this is actually his fourth letter. Pastor Brad might have told you about that last week, that the uh, First Corinthians is really two letters wrapped up in one. Uh, he wrote the first six chapters. They asked some questions, and then he answered them uh, in the second half of First Corinthians 1. And then he wrote them a letter that God in his sovereignty has chosen not to preserve for us. And, and now this letter, Second Corinthians, is actually probably the fourth time that he's written them, and each time it's a result of problems within the church where they had forgotten the things that Paul had taught them. In fact, maybe a better word is they were ignoring the things that Paul had taught them. And right away in this current letter, it's being exposed that their problem is not just with what Paul had taught, but with Paul himself. These people at Corinth were being influenced by these, uh, this group of false teachers uh, yesterday, as I was uh, running, I actually listened through the entire book of uh, 2 Corinthians. We challenged you to read it this week, and so I've been reading it, and I like listening to it sometimes in other translations, and so I was listening to it, and later in the book, Paul's going to talk about these super apostles, and, and these super apostles had come in with this eloquent message, and they had, uh, were, were uh, glamorous, and they were gimmicky, and they were eloquent, and they had all kinds of uh, fun things to talk about. They flew in on their jets. They were wearing their Armani suits. They had their uh, limousines that were, they were being driven around in, and Paul was not as impressive as them. Uh, Paul was living in a tent. He was homeless. He, he wasn't an orator. He, he wasn't a, a great speaker. And so therefore, they were calling into question his very uh, apostleship. And, and so now, not only are they questioning uh, the things that he's taught them, they're questioning his motives, they're questioning his intentions, and, and they're questioning his integrity. We've all heard the phrase that there's nothing new under the sun, and this is exhibit A. They didn't like Paul's message. They didn't like the solutions to the problems uh, that he was proposing. And so what did they do? They attacked the person. They attacked the messenger. And here we are again, thousands of years later, still doing the same exact thing. Now, Pastor Brad and I sound like a broken record that we tell you that's our problem with politics. That's why we find politics so disgusting because it doesn't matter whether you're the left, the right, down the middle. This seems to be the new mode of how we deal with issues. We don't deal with the issue. We attack the people behind the issues, the very people made and created in the image of God. And this goes so far beyond politics. This has now creeped into uh, how we operate our schools. It's creeped into sports, even our churches. This past week, I literally had to shut down the comments of one of the LHC Facebook posts that we'd put out there welcoming somebody and inviting you and invited you uh, to our service last week to enjoy uh, some time wearing your sports gear. And somebody went after us. We had to shut down the, the comments. 
They, they weren't here, by the way. It was uh, nobody in the room this morning. It was somebody from outside the church. But uh, nonetheless, they were coming at us pretty strong. And so in an odd way, we ought to be a little encouraged by the fact that even Paul, who I would argue was probably the most kingdom-minded person who has ever lived, even he experienced the pain of fractured relationships. But on the other hand, when you are the one experiencing the pain, it's incredibly hurtful. Pastor Brad shared a meme with me uh, this week, and it said this. It said, the, uh, the more people I meet, the better I like my dog. Amen? <laughs> but listen, when the hurt comes at the hands of professing Christians uh, who, who, who claim to follow Jesus, it's even worse because we expect better. We know better. And by all historical accounts, again, as we'll see later in the chapter, Paul was not this impressive figure. He was not this powerful public speaker. And now the Corinthians are accusing him not only of being homeless, not only of not wearing nice clothes, they're now accusing him of being a liar and someone with sinful motives. And so Paul has a decision to make. And it's the same decision that we have each and every time that we encounter a hurtful relationship. Are we going to respond in anger? Are we going to fly off the handle at somebody? You know, another one of the things that we often do is that we just decide uh, we're going to shut things down. We're going to cut people off. That's how we're going to deal with it. We're just going to uh, write them out of our lives. Or we can do what Paul does and we respond in a way that glorifies God. And so the very first thing that we see in this passage this morning, we see three different principles that we can learn of how to handle and how to address painful relationships. And the first thing Paul tells us is to live with integrity. See, according to Scripture, my heart is hardwired in such a way that the last place I want to look when trying to figure out a problem, when I, the last place I want to look when I want to try to figure out uh, the pain in a relationship is in the mirror. I, I just don't want to do that. I, I'm hardwired uh, to spot your problems. I don't know about you, but I'm an expert at spotting your problems uh, as you got out of your car this morning. Okay, I'm really good. We're really good at doing that. But here's a phrase that we've used a lot over the years, that if the only common denominator in all your dysfunction is you, then the problem is probably you. It's my heart in the midst of painful relationships, in the midst of painful encounters, I have to begin to explore what's going on in my heart. Again, a verse that you're probably sick to death of hearing us quote, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it springs everything else in your life. And so when conflict hits, one of the first things we have to do, one of the first things we should do is focus on our own hearts, because whatever is there is exposed by conflict. That's another phrase that you've heard over and over over the years, that relationships, specifically conflict within those relationships, draws out of us what we did not know was inside of us. And so what's happening here is that the people are lying about Paul as to why he had to change his travel plans. We don't know why he had uh, evidently been uh, intending to come there. He had communicated that he was coming, and now he's had to communicate that uh, there's been a change of plans, and they are angry. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Not only did he want to come once, he had, wanted, he had planned to come twice, and he'd had to cancel his plans. And the text doesn't tell us exactly what they were saying, but whatever it was, it was bad enough that Paul had to spend some time 
setting the record straight. It was probably that they were saying that Paul didn't love them, that Paul really didn't uh, care for them very much, and that he had ghosted them because they really didn't mean as much to him as his other churches did. Again, we don't know exactly what they were saying, but we know that what they were doing, they were calling his integrity into account. So Paul begins to tell them, not in a defensive tone, but in a very pastoral tone, he tells them a few things. He says, first of all, he says, I acted with simplicity and sincerity towards you. That's in verse 12. Also in verse 12, he says, I'm writing by the grace of God. We know that he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not by his own earthly wisdom. In verse 13, he says, I want you to fully understand my motives, not partially. I don't want you to understand half the story. Apparently, they had just taken a little bit of the facts and they had run with it. He says, listen, I want you to understand uh, all of the reasons why I made this decision. And then he bears his heart by telling them twice that he really did desire to see them on the way to and on the way back from Macedonia and that he wanted to give them this second experience of grace. I love that phrase, second experience of grace. Most commentators uh, think that this has nothing to do with salvation. What they, what they think is that he was busy collecting uh, goods and money for the poor people, for the poor Christians that were living in Corinth. And they believed that he was collecting these things to drop off for them. And so that was his plans. That's why he was heartbroken. It's because something uh, came in and changed. It was something so big had happened that he couldn't come and bring them these very gifts. He wanted them to experience this second experience of grace. And, and now they're saying, that's not true. You, you, you didn't come to us because you just wanted to put that in your own pockets. You wanted to use it for your own good. You wanted to uh, do whatever with it. And he's saying, no, that's not what's happened here. For me, there are very few things that bother me more than when my motives are questioned. Can you relate to that? Like, I, I, I hate that when you question why I did something. Most of you know that the last few years... Uh, uh, one of my roles here at Liberty Heights has been to be the face of our revitalization efforts. So uh, four years ago, our efforts in Lebanon and then uh, most recently in Mason. And listen, uh, revitalization is difficult. It's a hard job because it involves a lot of change and change is hard and change can be painful. And even outside of these existing congregations to be accused of trying to build a little kingdom, of trying to plant our flag wherever we can find a place, when really we want to expand our influence within our community so that more and more people can come to Jesus Christ and to be accused of just planting your flag somewhere so you can grow your own little empire. Those accusations uh, are painful. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, literally as we were coming off the series on God's good design for sexuality where we talked about biblical sexual ethics... We didn't shy away from those conversations. And recently, somebody came to Pastor Brad and accused him of not being willing to call out sin in our local culture. Like, are you kidding me? But accusations like that sting. But when someone calls into question our motives and our attentions, there's something that we should do uh, first. Uh, the very first thing we should do, uh, listen to the counsel of pastor and author Tim Keller. Uh, he's retired now, one of my favorite follows on Twitter. He says, even when you think that the criticism you receive is completely unfounded and that the critic is completely unreliable, always ask yourself, is there any kernel of truth that I can learn and grow from? Is there any kernel of truth that I can learn and grow from? I'm telling you, that's not the first place that my mind wants to go. 
He's really saying, is there, uh, we should ask ourselves, is there any lapse of in integrity that would merit these criticisms? And so Paul is, is willing to go back and he's willing to, to look at his own motives and to explore his actions and, and now to present the integrity of his actions, not in a defensive tone, Again, in a pastoral tone to assure them, in fact, that his love for them was unwavering even though his flight into town was canceled. And then Paul doubles down. He really tries to help them get a sense of the sincerity of heart towards them. And so he begins in verse 17 by rhetorically asking, he says, listen, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? He's basically saying, listen, I'm not wishy-washy. Like what I say, you can trust. I'm not a flake. He goes on in verse 17 to say, do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and then no, no at the same time? In other words, what he's asking them, do you think that I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth, saying yes and no to the same question? Is that what you think of me and my motives? And then to put a punctuation mark on his argument, uh, try to faithfully win them back to trusting him, he brings out uh, three big witnesses. These are the big guns, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as his witnesses. Look at verse 18. He says, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, what he's saying is, Surely as God is faithful, my words are faithful too. If you can trust God, you can trust me. And then if that's not enough, he takes it to another level. Look at verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. The him here in verse 20 points back to Jesus in verse 19, he's saying, just as the promises of God are certain in Christ, so are my words certain. I'm not vacillating. I'm telling you the truth. I love that verse that says, all of the promises of God in Christ are yes and amen. The word amen there literally translates as yes. That's why it's so encouraging to the guy on stage preaching that when you say something that really resounds with you, the Holy Spirit is using God's word to really speak with you, to verbally say amen, which is a way of saying, yes, I agree with that. That's good. Preach it, brother. We need more of that in our churches. And so all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And then Paul wraps everything up by bringing in the Holy Spirit into this. He anchors his whole plea in verse 22 he says that God has put his seal on us and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, this is a passage that when we teach on eternal security, that once you are justified, you can never become unjustified. This is really a key verse that we use. And the temptation in our sermon prep meetings this week was to step back and preach an entire message on this verse. But as we really explored the original context, Paul's not using this verse uh, to talk about eternal security. Yes, it's appropriate that we use this verse when talking about eternal security, but that's not what he's doing. He, he's telling them that, the, listen, the Holy Spirit is God's down payment to us as a promise that we belong to him, that God has made this promise, that it's found itself to be true in Jesus, and, and the Holy Spirit has come into our lives as a down payment, as a reminder that at some point we're going to receive full payment. And that full payment is when we step into the, uh, across the shores of that river and we walk into uh, heaven, into the very presence of God for the very first time, once and forever in his presence, we'll receive that payment. And so Paul is saying, listen, just as sure as God's promises that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that are sealed by the Holy Spirit, you can trust my promises too. This is important, so if you're listening, smack your neighbor and say, wake up. 
Paul knew that nothing breaks trust in a relationship like the lack of integrity. Nothing breaks trust in a relationship that you have like a lack of integrity. And Paul's instructions on how to live for Christ were being discounted, not because they didn't like the message, but because they were mad at the messenger. They didn't trust him because he changed his plans. And now, because for reasons that they couldn't even see, that they didn't have the foresight, uh, they didn't have the, uh, the, the 3,000 feet or the 30,000 foot view, they were mad at him, accusing him of lacking integrity. And so Paul now has taken the entire second half of chapter one uh, to make a case for his integrity, not for his own reputation, but for the sake of restoring the relationship with people that he loved. Listen, biblical community is always messy, it's always gonna be messy. Uh, as life groups are forming, as personalities are coming together, it, it is awkward at times, it is messy at times, but you don't have to make it even more difficult by failing to live with integrity within the context of those relationships. And so Paul had to go back and take inventory, not just of his actions, but also his intentions. And so do we if we're going to navigate the messiness of biblical community. Well, I am uh, aware that at this point in the sermon, you guys are uh, trained to know that we typically have three teaching points, and here we are 21 minutes into uh, the sermon, and we're only through one. And so I want you to rest assured this morning that uh, we're going to go through the next two points a little more quickly, but we want to spend the majority of our time on this first point, because uh, if uh, a lack of integrity causes us to lose relationships, then the next two points are our moot point. And so the second challenge that uh, we get this morning from Paul, is to be motivated by love. Paul turns the, uh, the chapter to chapter 2, and he says, be motivated by love. And he begins to tell them why he did not visit them. Now, as I read these first four verses to you, I want you to observe uh, the, the different references he makes to how painful it was to write this letter. When I was back at Cedarville University in the fall of 1992, I took my first uh, Bible study class, How to Study the Bible for All It's Worth. I can remember the textbook. And one of the, uh, the, the first ways that you study the Bible is to make observation. You start to look for things and words that repeat themselves over and over in a short amount of, uh, of space. And so do that with me this morning. I'll help you count when he talks about his pain. He says, for I made up my mind, verse 1, not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote as I did so that uh, when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I think it's safe to say that Paul is emotionally invested in this interaction. Seven times or eight times, he's used the word pain or tears or anguish. He cares deeply for these people. But evidently, some sort of corrective conversation was awaiting Paul upon his visit. He anticipated a pretty unpleasant interaction, a pretty painful conversation. And maybe it was another act of church discipline like he'd had to uh, help the church enact back in 1 Corinthians. 
He was maybe coming in and having to expel somebody outside of the church. Uh, understand church discipline. If you're not familiar with what that is, it's, uh, Paul's not coming in to show them he's the boss. He's not coming in to show them that he's in charge. Uh, he's coming in that's taking somebody that, that's involved in open, uh, unrepentant, habitual sin, and he's pushing them outside the boundaries of the church. And the reason that you do this is out of love so that you can lovingly push them towards repentance. And so maybe that's what awaited him. And sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is to have a difficult conversation. And he knew that's what was coming. And so let me make just three quick observations from these verses on what it means to be motivated by love. First observation is this. There's no such thing as authentic community apart from honest conversations. There's no such thing as authentic community apart from honest conversations. Think about this. Paul was an apostle, but he was also their spiritual father. Uh, he had led these people to Christ. Undoubtedly, he had been there when they were baptized. He had watched them grow in their faith, and now he'd been gone for a really long time. And like a dad coming home from a business trip, he couldn't wait to be with his children. But he wasn't excited about the fact that the first task about getting home was to have to have this corrective conversation. Listen to me, church. Biblical community is a mixture of encouraging the faint-hearted, but it also involves admonishing the unruly. We learn about this in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's not either or, it's both and. And Paul understood that he needed to come and have this difficult conversation. He knew that it was for their good. Undoubtedly, he uh, understood the author of Proverbs who said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And he knew it was coming, but he did not look forward to it. Here's the second observation that we can make, is that love is not the absence of accountability. Proverbs says that a parent who refuses to discipline their child actually hates them. Think about that for a second. A, a parent who refuses to discipline their child actually hates them. It's this verse uh, that gives evidence to the fact that my mom loves me. When I was growing up in church, I had a younger brother just two years younger than me, and we fought like cats and dogs, and you just had to separate us. And on those Sundays, when there wasn't somebody sitting between us, like it was just the royal rumble. But my mom had a ninja move where she could grab me by the ear, and, and she could uh, usually um, inflict such damage that it would cause me to obey rather quickly. And if I didn't very quickly, then she would drag me down the center aisle out to the women's bathroom where she would have a wooden spoon waiting in her purse. Anybody else's mom carry a wooden spoon in their purse? Anybody? Okay, I got one brother, man. It was like the perfect trifecta to let me know how much she loved me. And so listen to verses 2 and 3 again. This time I'm going to read them from the Living Bible paraphrase. Paul is the same way. He says, For I'm, uh, if I make you sad, who's going to make me happy. In other words, I'm going to upset you and I want to be there. Uh, and then the very person that I've pained is now going to be the person that's going to have to try to make me happy. He says, you're the ones to do it, but how can you do it if I cause you pain? That's why I wrote you as I did in my last letter, so that you will get things straightened out before I come. He's wanting to have this painful conversation now in the form of a letter so that they get things straightened out so that when he gets there, it can be that joyful conversation rather than the corrective one. Listen, to not hold someone accountable for sinful behavior is to fail to love them. That takes us to our last observation, and then we'll move on to our last point this morning. Love has to be the motivation for confrontation. Love has to be the motivation 
for confrontation. Listen, if you're not dreading that difficult conversation, if it's not keeping you awake at night the night before, then you're probably not motivated by love. Have you ever met somebody that's just a little too excited to have a corrective conversation in your, in your life? Like somebody, you, you know, I'll picture that person, like they're quick to jump in and quick to let you know how it's supposed to be. And it doesn't appear that they have been dreading that conversation. Listen to verse 4, uh, again, from the Living Bible paraphrase. Paul says, oh, how I hated to write that letter. It almost broke my heart. I, I tell you honestly, I, I cried over it. I, I didn't want to hurt you, but I had to show you how very much I loved you and cared about what was happening to you. Uh, the pages of the letter were probably stained with his very tears. Church, here's what happens when love is not the motivating force behind these conversations. It means that, one, we're motivated by the pride of being right, the pride of having to be in control, and when that happens, our words are too harsh. Or, or the other end of the spectrum, we're motivated by the fear of man, the fear of man is that I, I worry more about what you're going to think of me than I do about this, having this difficult conversation. And so I avoid the conversation altogether. There's two extremes of what happens when we're not motivated by love. These are the two common idols of the heart that we're going to have to battle, that we're going to have to push through when we come to these painful places in relationships. And so that brings us to Paul's last challenge as we push through the pains of relationship. First one is to live with integrity. And then second, let everything that you do, all of your speech, all of your conversation, as difficult as it is, be motivated by love. And now finally, be generous with forgiveness. There is no such thing as enduring relationships apart from being generous with forgiveness. Ask anybody that's been married 40, 50, 60 years, and they'll probably tell you uh, that the one thing that's most evident in the life of, of their spouse is their willingness to forgive. Uh, why do we need a lot of forgiveness? Because sinner's going to sin. Uh, that, that's just who we are. And so because we're fallen, because we're not yet glorified in, in our body and in our speech and in, in, in our thought life, uh, we sin and we need lots of forgiveness. And so pick up with me in verse 5 where Paul begins to describe a relationship within the church that had not been restored. And I think he's addressing this issue uh, of the fact that they were withholding forgiveness. Verse 5, he says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment, he's talking about excommunication, talking about church discipline where uh, they lovingly have to let somebody uh, live outside the uh, umbrella of the church. He says this punishment by the majority has been enough. So you would rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might not test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything at all, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that you might not be outwitted by Satan. Now, most scholars believe that what this is a reference to, that the forgiveness that's being withheld, was the person that was, uh, we find back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this person was involved in open, uh, unrepentant, habitual sexual sin within the church. It was heinous. 
and originally they weren't doing anything about it. And so uh, Paul taught them through scripture on what it means to set them outside the protection of the church in the hopes that they would come in running back in repentance. And apparently, praise the Lord, this person had come to a place of repentance, but instead of forgiving him, church is still shunning him. Now listen, we're almost out of time here. We would pause and preach an entire sermon on forgiveness. In fact, we have before, I have before. We've taught on it lots of times. And despite your love for long-winded sermons, amen? Let me quickly just highlight two aspects of forgiveness that we don't want to skip over uh, this morning. The first is this, uh, that forgiveness is a decision, not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision, not a feeling. He was challenging them to forgive this unrepentant, excuse me, this repentant person, despite how they felt about the egregious nature of his sexual sin. And it was, it was awful. It brought reproach upon the name of Christ, upon this church. But they had come back, they had repented, uh, and now Paul is saying, offer and extend forgiveness. And secondly, don't miss these words at the end of that verse I just read. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Did you hear that? That one of the primary strategies of Satan, one of the strategies that he uses to outwit you is to convince you that your feelings, not biblical truth, is what motivates us to forgive other people in the midst of these uh, painful relationships. And so let me make this as plain as day. Refusing to forgive is clear evidence the devil's outwitted you. Refusing to forgive is clear evidence that the devil has outwitted you. And here you are drinking bitter poison, waiting for the other person to die. And really the only thing that's happening is everybody around you is being defiled by the bitterness that's spilling out of your own heart. And that's exactly what Satan wants to happen. Listen to me closely. The people who rarely forgive other are people who do not understand how much forgiveness they receive from Jesus. This person that sinned against you, uh, their sin against you pales in comparison to the sin that you have committed against Jesus Christ. Your sin caused him to go on the cross. In church, you don't have to make others pay for their sins because Jesus already did that on their behalf. Amen? In church, you know what will happen as we begin to navigate the messiness of relationships and as we do that with integrity, as we do that with love, as we do that with forgiveness, you know what happens? I'll tell you what happens. That your life won't stink like that fish dumpster at North Shore Marina. That your life will put off a more pleasant aroma to those that are around you. How do I know this? Look at verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. Whenever Paul uses this term, those who are being saved, it's a reference to sanctification. It's people that have been justified and now are being sanctified. Uh, sanctification is the process of becoming holy. It's every single day looking more and more like Jesus. Tomorrow when I get up, I'll look more like Jesus than today when I got up. And if you're not in the process of being sanctified, then you have to question as to whether or not you've ever been justified. And what Paul is saying is that for those that are being sanctified, that when you do these things, that when you live with integrity, that when you make love the overwhelming motivation of all of your speech and conversation and actions, when you offer forgiveness freely, then what's going to happen is that you're going to become the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved, those within the church, and amongst those who are perishing. Paul goes on to say that the message will be received differently by those different groups. 
That to those that are being saved, it's a message of life. To those that are perishing, they're blinded by the truth. And so to them, they just hear the wrath and they hear about death. And so it's a difficult message already to communicate. And you don't have to be a stinky person doing it. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Listen, living in a world marred by sin stinks sometimes, doesn't it? If we had an open mic this morning, we could all come up and give testimony for the rest of the day about all the ways that the world stinks, all the sin in the world that has caused it to smell like that fish dumpster. But guess what? We don't have to be a stinky people. And in a world full of fish dumpsters, let's commit this morning to being people who give off the aroma of Christ to those who need it the most. Amen? Amen. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. We just want to spend a few minutes as we do each and every week, a time of focused response, walk you through some prayer prompts this morning. We say all the time that we think the gospel demands a response. It's part of worship. It's hearing the word being taught, and now it's responding. And so I want you to Take an assessment. I want you to look in the mirror. I want you to do what Tim Keller said. Is there a kernel of truth? And some of the things that maybe are being said about me, is there a kernel of truth to how I'm a cause of some of these, some of the pain that's going on in the relationships that I'm a part of? Did you ask God this morning to search your heart? Did you give the Holy Spirit freedom to reign inside the dark crevices of your inner man? Would you confess those things this morning? Would you say, God, this is not who I want to be? Maybe this morning you can even admit that despite not wanting to be this, you can't help yourself. And so would you ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit to give you the strength that Paul talks about in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Would you pay for, pray right now for the power of Christ in your life? Would you ask the Holy Spirit right now to make you aware of forgiveness that needs to take place within your relationships? Did you make a commitment this morning that you want to be what Paul says in verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. Father, this morning I'm aware of the fact that there are some living in relationships and painful relationships right now and they don't know what it means to have the power of the Holy Spirit live within them. God, I pray right now that you would invite these people into a relationship with you. That as they come to you and ask for forgiveness of their sins, that they recognize that compared to Jesus, that their life does not stand up to God's standards for holiness. And God, through forgiveness, to fulfill your promise to allow the Holy Spirit to now dwell inside of them that now supernaturally they would find the strength to do these things that are otherwise unnatural. God, the world has taught us to attack the people behind the problems. 
God, I pray that as Christians, we would confess to the times that we have done that. We would stop doing that. That we would start looking for solutions. And that we would do so in a way where we're seen as having a pleasant aroma coming out of our lives. God, that you would give us boldness as we preach this exclusive gospel. God, open up the ears and the hearts of those that we love that are living outside of a relationship with Jesus. God, we pray all of this through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.